Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. series that we began last week on graceful exits and last week we covered what is probably our easiest topic of the series how do you gracefully exit a conversation and why is that important because we are a people of a God of grace and love and we need to reveal that from the beginning to the end from how we start a conversation to how we conclude it and today we're going to talk about when we end a relationship. And it's tragic that we have to have this conversation because not all relationships are going to naturally run their course and come to a gentle close at the end of life and then be reinvigorated again on the day of resurrection as we are reunited and enter gloriously into the kingdom to come. The reality is that we are human beings. We are inclined to sin, and many of us have experienced that, not only the effects of our own sin, but the effects of other people's sin crashing into our lives and affecting us, giving rise to evil in the world. And sometimes, despite our will, our prayer, and our hope, as the psalmist says, relationships end. But how we choose to move into that ending and go through it is vitally important as people of God. Now, during our Lenten series, right before Easter, we were talking about buried in the tomb, things Christians should stop doing. And one of the things we talked about was triangulation. You know, when you are having a disagreement with somebody else, and then you try to get someone else involved in that, a third person. Now, ideally, it's somebody to mediate, but most of the time it's like, let me tell you about Sarah and what she did, and then the two of us will go and confront her. That is triangulation, that is not triune. And so we don't wanna be doing that. And one of the things we talked about in that series was that when you feel tension, when you feel that something has occurred that is starting to rip the fabric of your relationship, we go to what Jesus tells us in Matthew 18, which is that you first go to the other person and you tell them, even as our children knew, you talk openly and honestly and you talk it out with one another. Privately, the two of you together, with Christ as a presence, you talk about what is happening. Now, the good Lord willing and the creek don't rise, you will be reconciled. But if it doesn't occur, Jesus gives us the next step. Then, and only then, do you bring some independent mediators to come. We don't go and gather our posse and invade the OK Corral. Instead, we are looking for other people who can listen, observe, and offer some insight and perhaps even some good advice if we've chosen wise mediators to help us come back together. The purpose of this is reconciliation, not confrontation and condemning the other. And that's a hard thing to do. And sometimes, even if you do all of Matthew 18, despite it all, a relationship will end. Sometimes we see this with a significant other if we are dating. Sometimes we experience it with a spouse. It can happen across 
Lines in families, friends, fellow students, colleagues in work, neighbors, and it can even happen with people in the church. And so it's very important for us to remember that we are implicitly giving a testimony in how we choose to end, yes, even a relationship. And that is what Joseph was living out for us. Now, some of you were like, it's not Advent, right? Did I miss something? It's not Christmas. No, it's not. But one of the things we don't always pay attention to because we're trying to cover a lot of ground and incredible events in Advent and Christmas is what Joseph does here. And that is that Joseph is confronted with a painful reality. That sometimes things happen in relationships, even at the beginning of a relationship, that seem to throw us off course and off track irrevocably. And so Joseph and Mary, their families had worked out this marriage, and there was a great expectation, not only from the two households, but also from Mary and Joseph themselves, and, and the entire community would have been excited for that day when these families would have joined in a new and powerful way, and Mary would have become part of Joseph's family, and once more the blessings of God would be upon a household. This was going to make their entire community better. And then something happened. It becomes very clear that Mary is pregnant. Now, it doesn't, it's not a question of how can this be. They knew how people got pregnant, and that was the problem. They were worried that she had already been unfaithful, that even before the marriage had truly begun, that she had rendered that relationship. And Joseph is probably wondering, what do you do? Joseph doesn't want to utterly destroy Mary, and let's be clear, he had all the biblical underpinnings to do so. He could have very easily enacted any number of Levitical laws. He could have had her brought out to be stoned. He could have asked to enact one of the laws in the stories of Numbers 25, where actually you bring her before the priesthood to induce an abortion. There's all kinds of wonderful, horrible things that humans could have done to each other. He could have had her publicly humiliated. Forget destroying her to the point of death. He could have just destroyed her socially to the point that she would have been a pariah for all of her days. And instead, Joseph, according to the text, he is a righteous man. He is righteous. And we catch glimpses of this throughout the gospel accounts that repeatedly what goes kind of understated is that Joseph is a devout and observant religious Jew. He is continually trekking down from Nazareth to Jerusalem in order to make the proper sacrifices, to attend the holy festivals. He takes Jesus there after birth to make sure that he has the blessings and they proceed through the covenant. He's very astute, aware, and participatory in being a religious person. He is striving after the righteousness of God. And because of this, verse 19 says, her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. He wasn't going to go out in public and say to all of their family and friends and neighbors, she has committed adultery, she has been a wanton woman, she is clearly carrying somebody else's child, and we all need to make her pay for it. And how we shun her and mock her, and how we exclude her from our life, how we make her feel the punishment of her wrongdoing by me and my family. But that's not who Joseph is. 
that's not who God is calling us to be. And so out of righteousness, he determines to let her exit gracefully, quietly, gently, and with deep, profound awareness, he is going to quietly dissolve the engagement and let her live a life that hopefully she can do. Go back into her family's household and maybe the father of the child will marry her and they will live happily ever after. So Joseph is trying to do the right thing. Because all of us have experienced, not ourselves, but when someone else's relationships go bad, that they're just very amicable and kind about it. None of us have ever seen a brutal divorce or lived one ourselves. But the reality is that sometimes brokenness brings such internal pain that we unleash it into the world. We want everybody to know why this relationship has come to an end. We want everybody to know that it really wasn't us, it was them. We want everyone to see our pain and then help us visit that upon the other. And that is not what we are called to do. Instead, Joseph models not destroying her, which by the way, would have destroyed the child in a number of ways. He decides to do the right thing, which is not easy. Because in our lives, we are constantly bound between two ends of a pole. Sometimes they align, and hallelujah, but for the most part, we spend our days deciding whether or not we're going to be righteous or right. Now, righteous, that's hard, because now you have to do things that God would have you do the way God wants you to do them. Now, if you want to do it your way and you want to be objectively correct, that's right. And that feels really good, by the way. It feels really, really good when the person that was wrong has to admit that you were right. Isn't that a moment where you're like, oh. But that's not what was happening here. You'll notice that Joseph didn't confront her and need her to admit that she had sinned. And we forget this because we all know the story, right? We're hopping already there, baby, manger, you're already there. We have to stop for a moment and remember that nobody at this time knew that Mary was pregnant with the incarnation of God Almighty. She looked like a teenage single mother. Scholars tell us that chances are Mary was somewhere between the age of 12 and 16. That's a very young woman. And Joseph, according to the customs and the, the life of the community in his time, would have been close to 30. He would have been fully capable now of overseeing the entire family and the household, not just his house where he was living with his new bride and whatever children they had, but the entire family. He would have had to be ready to step in and carry everyone forward economically, through his leadership, through his guidance, and his providence. And so he would have been older. Now that's an age differential that most of us don't continue to embrace, but what you find is that Joseph had all the power. He was a man respected because of his age and because of what he had done. And she's just a really young woman. And he could have totally, flippantly used his power, his privilege, his position in order to obliterate her. But that's not righteousness. And you'll notice that God seems to let Joseph work through this. And there it is. He has decided not to be right, but to be righteous. And because of that, 
as he goes to bed, having made that commitment to himself, the angel of the Lord appears to him and gives him something really, really precious. Now, a lot of us have felt that call of God wanting you to do something in your life. Have you ever had that where you knew God wanted you to do something and you were like, no, Lord, not me, not now. And God was like, you're doing this. Just me? Am I the only one? But God does this to us sometimes. God is telling us to do something. And you could sit here and you could say, why? Why me? Why this? Why now? But a lot of times God's not inclined to tell you that. Why? Because I said so. It's always great when your divine parent tells you the same thing your earthly parents tell you, right? And so God says, this is what I want done. But Joseph is going to get an incredible gift. Because of his desire and his inclination away from sin and into righteousness, God is going to give him something that a heck of a lot of clergy have asked for in our lives. Why? Why? You will marry her. Not only will you marry her, but you will choose this child as your own. Despite the fact that now the whole community and all the families and all the friends, they know that that's not your child. You will choose him. You will adopt him because you are going to name him. That was the official benediction upon a father's claiming of the child, giving them the name. And Joseph will name Jesus. Now, God picked out the name, but Joseph is going to be the one to publicly bless the baby with the name. And God is very clear through the words of the angel why. God says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. God is coming. Emmanuel. Now, most people would probably go, you know, I thought I was getting married and having a child, like a regular kid. This is a whole new world for Joseph. Joseph, being an observant Jew, knows what is happening here when Isaiah is cited. Joseph is starting to get the foresight, the little hint that we are talking about the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy. That's not a little kid who's going to go to preschool and that you're going to take through high school and might pay for some college and pay for a wedding. This is a kid that is going to change everything. Everybody has been on their knees praying for this child. Although I don't think they were praying for a child. I think they were praying for a king. They were looking for an adult, and God sent a baby. And God says to Joseph, this is your moment to help the Messiah come, guard him, help him. And in the Gospel account of Matthew, Joseph becomes crucial. Remember, it's in the Gospel account of Matthew that the Magi come and have their encounter with Herod. And Herod, in something we don't often talk about, called the slaughter of the innocents, after he finds out that the wise men have gone home from another way and are not coming back through Jerusalem to, to tell him exactly where the Messiah has been born, Herod will send his troops and they will slaughter every child under the age of two, casting a net to ensure that the Messiah is dead. And in order to save Jesus from that, 
The angel will once more appear to Joseph in a dream and warn him that Herod and others are coming. You must flee to Egypt. So not only have you stepped outside the bounds of what is socially acceptable by claiming Mary and the child for yourself, but now you have to leave and go all the way to Egypt. And you are descended from a people who suffered in Egypt for 400 years. Everybody's aching to go back there. And he will dwell there for we're not sure how long. With a newborn? With a young child? With a wife? And then be invited to come back. Only to realize that Herod's kingdom has now been subdivided among his children who aren't exactly more morally competent. And so he will choose to go north to Nazareth and plant his family there. Joseph is going to become a crucial part of this. And God is telling him why. And he thought he was just going to end a relationship gracefully. Righteous. And the world is going to get turned on its head because of this child, because of this choice, because of this person. It's incredible when you see the ramifications of that. Now, I just got back from annual conference, and for those of you who are blessed to have never had to deal with annual conference, it is the gathering of all the clergy of the Virginia Annual Conference. All of us must be there. We have to send a letter to the bishop to explain why we're not, and then even then she may tell you to show up. You have to go and do this, and then there is a lay delegate for every clergy person. And so it is equal, 50-50, and we all show up and we do the work of the conference, overseeing all the districts in almost the entire state of Virginia of Methodism. And so we gather and we begin actually separately. All the laity go to laity session, and all the clergy we go to clergy session, and this year that happened at 10.30 on a Thursday. And so 10.30 in the morning, we gather together, and it takes a little while to get almost a 1,000 clergy to be quiet and sit down. We mill about for a little bit. We talk. We see each other. And in our defense, in our defense, we had not actually laid eyes on each other for three years. The pandemic had kept us apart for three years. That's exactly the time that Jesus had all earthly ministry done. It's a long time. And so we gathered together, and we hadn't seen each other, and it was so good to see each other. And as several of us are talking about this morning, seeing that, you know, things had changed in three years. We'd all gotten a little older. Some of us had gotten a little plumper. Right? Things happen. And so we were reconnecting, and it was this beautiful opportunity to see each other again. And then we opened with worship. And even though we have access to instrumentation, even though if we wanted it, we could probably get an organ brought in, we always sing a cappella. Almost a thousand clergy singing a cappella in practically perfect four-part harmony. It's amazing. You would think that we had practiced it. And maybe we had. We opened this year with the hymn, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. It's number 64 in the hymnal. And Methodists have been singing this for almost 200 years. It was written in 1826. Methodists have been singing this for a long time. I sang this hymn long before I became clergy. And so when we gathered that day and we were singing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning, our song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, 
God in three persons, blessed Trinity. But the more that we started to sing, you get to verse three, and all of a sudden it has new meaning. Coming out of a pandemic, we sing, holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, through the eye of sinful man, thy glory may not see. Only thou art holy. There is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love and purity. And to be able to hear that together, to sing those words, to feel those words, was truly beautiful. And it reminded us of the connection and how important relationship is, but this was not an easy year for us. If you've been paying attention to what's been going on in the global sense of the Methodist Church, you might have heard a continuing dialogue about what will happen with inclusion of non-heterosexual persons. What will that do to the church? Will it happen? What will it do? Who will go? Who will stay? Who's in charge? We've been having this conversation actually for decades. And we tried to call the question in February of 2019, and it didn't go so well. And so we have been waiting for general conference which was supposed to happen in 2020, and then didn't because of a pandemic. And then it didn't happen in 2021, and it didn't happen in 2022, and it's not gonna happen in 2023. Our next regular quadrennial meeting will be 2024. So there were some who said, we can no longer wait. It is time for us to exit. And the question is, will they exit gracefully? So one of the difficult tasks of clergy session is that in addition to the beautiful task of voting and approving new licensed local pastors, those that will be commissioned as provisional elders and deacons, and those who are going to be fully ordained as deacons and elders in the United Methodist Church, we recognize those that have died. We commend those that will retire. And this year we recognize that two have left us. Two have chosen to leave us and no longer be United Methodists, which might seem pretty simple, but it means that we are no longer clergy colleagues. Now, I knew one of them had met him, had had conversation with him. And even though he and I don't stand lockstep on hardly anything but grace, part of me was really sad because they weren't even there. They had already surrendered their ordination orders and they were not present. And I find myself thinking, you know, at least we could have said goodbye. You know, we, we can't go forward together, but may we both go forward in glory. May we be blessed as we emerge. But we couldn't have that. There was no graceful exit for a relationship of collegiality. Now, not every Methodist clergy person gets along with each other. We don't all like each other. Some of us are bizarre. But we are called, consecrated, and ordained together. We are those that serve. And at the end of the day, nobody understands what it is like to be with you more than somebody else who's been with people just like you. And that binds you. It brings you this commonality that is beyond words. And suddenly they were gone, almost like they had never existed. We didn't retire them and honor them at the service of retirees. 
We didn't even memorialize them as we did for the remembrance service, for those that had died over the course of the last three years. We didn't even do that. It was just over. And I'm standing here this morning and I'm still wrestling with, did we ghost them or did they ghost us or what happened? I'm not even sure what happened. But I know that chances are that I will never see these two again. Not on this side of the kingdom. And even though I don't agree with them on this particular issue, even though there were other things that I probably didn't agree with and things they didn't agree with on my end, we were bonded. We were in a relationship. And every year at clergy session of annual conference, we remembered and we lived out that bond. Whether it was for the singing of a hymn, the reading of scripture, and every year we actually say our vows again. We reaffirm the vows that we took when we were licensed, commissioned, and ordained. And for one moment, we are once more new together. But not anymore. Some are gone. You can't get mad at somebody for dying and you can't blame somebody for retiring. But what do you do with the loss when someone is just gone? That's why I know how important it is to exit gracefully from a relationship. Because I am still wrestling with, processing, discerning, and living out, what do I do with that? And now these aren't the clergy friends that I go and visit. I mean, this year was a wonderful thing because for the first time in three years, I got to see clergy that I went to licensing school with back in 2010. And we're all standing together and we're looking at each other and we don't look the way we looked in 2010. Some aged more like a fine wine. Some of us don't. But we're all here. And it was very exciting to look and see them. And the first words I ever preached at the age of 17 were these. We are a band of misfits. I have never been so prophetic in my entire life. I'm standing here I'm like, yeah, we are. Look at us. I mean, I will be the first misfit, capital M. But when we looked at it, it was like, how amazing is this? We've got deacons, we've got elders, we had a DS. Standing up here and looking and being like, it's amazing. Nobody would think we were friends. These people wouldn't pick each other. My siblings in Christ, we didn't. God picked us. And God has picked you. God has called you to be a vessel of grace and love. God has redeemed you and set you free from the sins and the mistakes of your past that you might be righteous before the Lord. And God is asking you, even in those difficult moments, to always think about graceful exits. How do we do that? Because we have a way in the church of memorializing those that have died. We have services of death and resurrection. And there we celebrate the life and the gifts and the blessings that that person was. And we look forward with great hope to the day of resurrection when Christ shall return and raise them up from the dead and reunite us. We have that hope. And our retirees, it's hysterical. You're like, I'll see you next year. And they're like, maybe, maybe not. Retirees apparently can send in their letter and get that approved easier. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. 
but we have served together and we have blessed them and sent them forth into retirement. And we know that one day we shall enter into the kingdom again. We know that. We commit to that at the retirement service. But the two that are gone, like those that have gone from your life, not by death or retirement, but those that have gone through less pleasant ways, will you see them again? Will you have the opportunity to rekindle what once was when it was beautiful and fresh and new and glorious? Because we all hear the scriptures. We actually read them at funerals. The, the one about in my father's house, there are many rooms, many mansions, a big mansion, a lot of rooms, however you want to interpret it. And we're looking for that day, right? Have any of you ever thought about how you're going to decorate your room when you get there? <laughs> ever thought about that? These are the things I think of thinking about that. But could you imagine you get there and you're welcomed in because God's grace is enough. Hallelujah. And you get in and you get the key to your new little kingdom and you show up at the door and you look over and you're like, oh, I didn't think we would see each other again. Kind of, I was kind of hoping that you'd be on like the other end over that way. But no, because I don't know if you've paid attention to the scriptures, but God has an interesting sense of humor. And so if you've got somebody that you have not done the graceful exit with, oh, trust me, you're going to have to wrestle with that. And so you're looking at the person as you get to enter into your doors, and you're like, all right, you know, God bless you. See you at dinner. And you go in, and it occurred to me, what if you go in, and it's like those hotel rooms, there's a door in the middle, but what if it's a doorway and there's no door and you just look at each other? Now, Revelation tells us that when the kingdom comes down like a bride adorned for her husband and the gates of the new city are opened, that they will never close. They are open forever. So God has already laid this groundwork for us. The door won't close. There is no door. And you're like, can I get a curtain? What can we do with this? How about we just always agree, like, never to look this way? We'll just this forever. Can you think of somebody who's going to be next door to you? Are you being like, God, please no? <laughs> but that is what God has been trying to get us to work on here and now. Because you may never know who's going to be in the kingdom. You may never know. You may not know what happens after the ungraceful exit. That person might revel in the glory of God and accept grace in a whole new way. That person might go on to perfection in God's love and surely be welcomed in. And those of us who are, you know, just holding on to grace to get us in, you get there and you're like, oh, I've said it before. I didn't think you were going to be here. And that's when they look at you and go, yeah, I didn't think you were going to be here either. But here we are. And isn't that really the point of grace? That people that you didn't think could be forgiven and loved can be. Because as much as I think about that story, I know there are people that are like, I really hope she doesn't get in. I don't blame them. I've sinned. I don't blame them. But even though I don't agree with what is happening with those two colleagues and what they have done and what they're trying to do and what they say, even though I don't agree with that, I find myself thinking, 
I hope I see him in the kingdom. I hope I do. And I hope that you and I and all the others will get to be together and sing hymns like Amazing Grace and Holy, Holy, Holy. That I hope that we're singing it and that the angels for one time are listening to us as we proclaim God's glory in bodies that will never cry, sin, get sick, die. That's the vision. What we don't really want to wrestle with as disciples is that how we exit a relationship here can deeply impact whether or not that person gets in. Because we decide whether or not we're going to show people what grace really looks like. Grace when people come is easy. Grace when it's new and it's exciting, that's, that's joyful. But what about when it gets hard? What about when it gets ugly? What about when it comes to the end? Because sometimes Matthew 18 is not going to work. And we can hope and we can pray and we can wish and we can try to will it into being, but it may not happen in this life. Thanks be to God that all grace and redemption doesn't end with this life. That there is a day when we will stand before the risen Christ. And maybe that will be the moment that some of us, it clicks. Ah, that is my Lord. There were an awful lot of people who saw Mary's belly grow. And they thought, Joseph is a fool. Joseph had every right to have her stoned. And okay, you know, maybe he's soft-hearted and he doesn't like blood, but at least he should have cast her off. No. Joseph, by choosing a graceful exit, actually is the catalyst for us discovering why, why Jesus is Emmanuel. His story, his decision, his choice, his commitment to righteousness and a graceful exit gives us that which the soul thirsts for. A glimpse into our God's thought process, a glimpse at God's plan, insight into what God is actually doing with this holy mess we call humanity. And we have it because of a decision of one human being just like us. So the next time, you feel yourself coming to that precipice, that brink, where you know that this relationship is going to end. Whether it is romantic, whether it is religious, whether it is personal, familial, collegial, whatever it is. When you feel yourself getting to that moment, remember that a graceful exit can actually change everything. Because what you leave is open possibility. You leave room for redemption. You leave the opportunity to be reconciled, if not in this life, then in the next. And that doesn't make it any easier. It is hard, holy work. But I promise you, I promise you with all the authority vested in me by the Virginia Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church, that when you choose that difficult but righteous, graceful exit for your next renting. 
that you are, in fact, doing the holy work where Christ is present. And Christ not only goes forth with the one who is leaving, but with the one who gracefully let them go. And that might be one of the biggest testimonies of your lives. When we join the United Methodist Church, we pledge to give our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our service, and our witness. Now, some of us don't have the prayer life that we wish we could have. Some of us don't have the presence that we wish that we could have or that we think we should have or aspire to have. Some of us don't have the ability to give fiscally what we would like to give. And some of us struggle with service. I've had people say, you know, I would really like to help with Vacation Bible School, but I got a problem. What's your problem? I don't like kids. That's going to be a problem. <laughs> that is going to be a problem. We'll have to work on that, but that's going to be a problem. So not all of us can serve the way that we would want to serve or hope to serve. But yes, even your cho choice of a graceful exit is your witness. And sometimes it's when people look back at how things ended, that they can truly see the grace that was. Have you ever looked back over your life at a relationship that no longer is? And maybe now that there's enough space and the, the negative emotions have kind of settled or resolved, you can look back and you can see some of the beauty that was there. You can see some of the things that were such blessings at the time. And maybe it makes your heart ache. Could it ever be again? The choices that you make about graceful exits with relationships make that pondering possible. So may your witness in how you exit a relationship bring glory to God, extend grace to those who maybe the world says don't deserve your grace, much less God's. And above all, may it be the seeds that are planted for someone to choose at a future date to say that, yes, Christ is mine. I accept the grace. And yes, Lord, if it is your will for all eternity, I will share heaven with them. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.